Well, we now turn to our first guest, uh, Anna Maria Archila. Uh, Anna Maria is a longtime immigrant rights leader and former co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy and Make the Road New York. Uh, Center for Popular Democracy is one of the largest community organizing networks in the country with 54 affiliate organizations in 32 states in Puerto Rico. She is running for lieutenant governor in the June 28 Democratic primary with New York City public advocate Jamani Williams, who is running for governor. That lieutenant governor's race was blown wide open last week when now former lieutenant governor Brian Benjamin resigned following his indictment on federal corruption charges. Under New York election law, there's only a slim chance that Governor Kathy Hochul can have Benjamin removed from the ballot at this point and replaced with someone more to her liking. This unexpected turn of events has brought a surge of endorsements to Archila in the past week and greatly increased the chances of an unabashedly left and pro-working class candidate winning statewide office in New York for the first time in decades, if ever. Anna Maria Archila, welcome to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to join you. Thank you. For starters, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be a Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor of the state of New York? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm i originally from Colombia. I came to the United States when I was 17 years old, and I was very lucky to find myself inside the immigrant rights movement in my early 20s. I started working out of um, at an organization that was called at the time the Latin, Latin American Integration Center, um, teaching English and helping um day laborers recover unpaid wages in the North Shore of Staten Island. And it was in that community that I learned the lesson that has carried me all the way through the last 20 years. Because um, in that community of day laborers, I met young people who were immigrants, uh, 15, 16, 17-year-old people who had crossed the border by themselves and had come to this country to send money home and they were working 10 and 12 hour days. They were renting a bed, beds to, you know, taking turns, sleeping in a bed, getting paid half of the minimum wage and just living in really difficult conditions. But even, you know, after 10 or 12 hour long days of work, they would come to this tiny storefront and say, I am ready to learn English. I'm here to learn. And sort of they would come alive in a way that was incredibly moving and powerful. And what I learned in that moment is that, When people find community, when people are connected to one another, they are able to sort of bring fully who they are, their histories, but also their dreams. And so their dreams were a very sort of powerful force um, that drove a lot of their efforts. And I think that's true for all of us. What we imagine of ourselves, what we imagine and envision for our loved ones is a really powerful force. And the things that often prevent us or make our lives hard are are the result of policies. So in the case of those um, young people, um, they were their lives were very much shaped by immigration policies that are so inhumane in the United States. Their lives were also shaped by housing policies that allow New York City to be regulated just by the market and make housing such a difficult thing to afford for most people. And the fact that they were getting paid half the minimum wage is really the result of, you know, poor law enforcement of the wage and hour laws. And so, so much of their lives was really the result 
result of policy choices. And, and I learned in that moment that our sort of our dreams coexist with the things that are challenging in our lives and that we could have a more just society if we tackle the things that make um, lives hard for people. And so I've spent the last 20 years building organizations like Make the Road, like the Center for Popular Democracy, that are organizations that allow working class communities, immigrant communities, black and brown communities to be powerful together, to envision solutions for the things that are challenging in their lives, and to actually be respected in our democracy, to be taken seriously. And that is the work that I have done. I believe that you know, in a state as rich as New York, one of the richest states in the country, we do not lack money, we do not lack resources, what we lack is leadership that is willing to be focused on improving the material conditions of people's lives. And um, we could elect leaders like Jumani, um, who has been you know, a fierce fighter for working families for a long time um, as governor. And we could have a lieutenant governor who is actually an ally to communities and to progressive legislators that are trying to achieve things like uh, protect tenants from evictions, uh, make sure that childcare is available to everyone, regardless of who they are, regardless of their immigration status, um, make healthcare accessible to everyone and so much more. And so I believe in New York that is possible. And that is why I decided to throw my hat in the ring to um, uh, sort of invite us all to believe and to sort of uh, build on the idea that uh, we could have a government that is focused on the priorities of working families and not the the whims and the desires of uh, real estate and billionaires. Right. And and you named um, a, a few of those goals just now that, that you and Jumani have uh, um, on your ticket together. But can you just outline again sort of what your your top platform goals are and what you would hope to succeed, uh, both you and Jumani? Yeah. Um, everywhere I go, I hear people talking about the impossible challenge that they face between jobs that don't pay enough and the rising cost of housing and healthcare and childcare and so and the cost of living. So working families are sandwiched between these two pressures. And the truth is that in New York, if we had a governor and a lieutenant governor who say, I'm not going to give $800 million to a billionaire to build a stadium, instead, I'm going to use $800 million to address childhood poverty in Buffalo, where 43% of the kids live in poverty, the, the fortunes and the lives of a generation would be changed, would be transformed. And so um, Jumani and I are fighting, uh, have an agenda that is focused on the things that are core priorities to working families, affordable housing, affordable childcare, access to good jobs for people who are in the care economy in particular, who are primarily women, women of color, working class women. Um, And a redefinition of safety from, you know, away from criminalization, away from incarceration, and more focus on investing in communities, because we know that the safest communities are the communities that are well-resourced, the communities where a mother doesn't have to work three jobs to pay rent, and a mother doesn't have to leave her children at home to take care of one another, because there is a childcare infrastructure that she can access, a safe community. 
community is a community where young people have after-school programming and where young people have access to parks that are um, well-resourced, that are lit, that are beautiful, um, where people have time to rest uh, and time to spend time with their families. And so that is the kind of New York that we know is possible and that we're fighting for. Right. And, uh, you know, four years ago, uh, Jamani ran on the ticket with Cynthia Nixon as the lieutenant governor candidate in the spot you now hold. And in that race, uh, he greatly outperformed uh, uh, Nixon. Uh, Nixon lost by 32 points. Um, I mean, ran a very valiant race, but uh, lost to Cuomo's money sh- machine by more than 30 points. Uh, while uh, Jamani came within about seven points of defeating then-Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. And this year, many people think you have a much better chance of winning than Jamani because of all the advantages of incumbency that Hochul now possesses, including a massive campaign war chest of more than $20 million. If you were to win the Democratic primary and become Kathy Hochul's running mate, how would you make that work, given that she probably wouldn't be very excited about that? And, And more importantly, how would you be a different kind of lieutenant governor, especially if you were serving under uh, Kathy Hochul? Uh, after all, this office has very few formal powers. Yeah. So for as long as I have been organizing, so for the last 20 years, the governor's office has been a block to progress. When we wanted to make sure that immigrant youth could access college, the governor's office was a block. When we wanted to raise the minimum wage, the governor's office was a block to progress. When we try to improve uh, protections for tenants, the governor's office is a block to progress. When we want to raise taxes on millionaires uh, and make sure that the people who have the most actually contribute their fair share, the governor's office is a block to progress. And for also for the duration of that time, the lieutenant governor has been used just as a surrogate of the governor just as a representative of the governor and ribbon cutting ceremonies. And I think that's a misconception of the lieutenant governor's office because it is not an appointed office. It's an elected office. It's an office that's elected by the people in the primary and again in the general. So it's an office that should actually act as a surrogate of the people, a representative of the people inside the executive mansion, an office that's dedicated to elevating the agenda of working families, the agenda of People who will not be make will not be able to make donations in the thousands um, to a governor's race. Um, the agenda of people who are always pushed to the margins and and often forgotten by by um, by Albany. So I envision a lieutenant governor's office that is more independent, that is a voice for accountability, that is always reminding Albany that our job is to address to make people's lives better. Not the lives of millionaires and billionaires. Their lives are already fine. (laughs) It's the lives of regular people, working people, people who are struggling to make ends meet. Um, And I would do that regardless of who the governor is. And Jumani and I have had extensive conversations. This is actually his idea. When he ran in 2018, he talked about the lieutenant governor's office as a public advocate. Um, and that is, uh, that is, he, he blazed this trail, um, that I am now walking on and he demonstrated that it's actually very possible, um, to, to win, uh, for progressives to win a lieutenant governor's race if we focus on it. And I'm so grateful for the leadership that he uh, exercised in 2018 and the, and the valiant campaign that he's running right now, because you're right, the governor has $20 million in her war chest. And yet when you hear people talk to Jumani, uh, they feel very moved by his message because they know that um, he's someone 
who has always, at every step of his political career, uh, been focused on the needs and priorities of working families and black and brown communities and working class communities. But um, I would, uh, you know, I hope to, uh, especially in a moment like this one, where the contrast is so clear and where the budget demonstrated what the governor is willing to fight for. She went to the mat to roll back bail reform and to give $800 million to, to a stadium um, on, you know, for a team owned by a billionaire who lives in Florida, not necessarily the priorities of working families. Um, it is especially important in this moment as we, as government is tasked with helping people stabilize out of the pandemic, uh, you know, two years of isolation and a lot of, a lot of loss and a lot of economic instability. It is more important than ever to be like extremely focused on the needs of regular people to address the crisis and that people are facing in their lives starting with the affordability crisis. So that is my vision for the role. Um, I, of course, um, would partner with the person that wins the primary for governor, because remember, there is, a, there is a primary for lieutenant governor and a primary for governor. And I would partner with whoever wins the primary for governor to make sure that we do not have a Republican, <laughs> Lee Zeldin, right. leading New York State, who, you know, Lee Zeldin is a very dangerous Republican, a Trumpist Republican. Um, and more importantly, to make sure that people have an ally inside the executive mansion, someone who will always be focused on elevating the voices, the dreams, the struggles, the aspirations of New Yorkers who are um, such a wonderful bunch, but who often get shortchanged um, in Albany. Right. And I have a, a quick follow-up here, which is, uh, for people who would ask, like, you've never held public office before. This would be your first public office. How do you address the experience issue? Yeah, so I have, I have spent the last 20 years doing politics from the ground up doing politics that are the hard way the the you know i i spent the first 13 years of my life building power rooted in working class immigrant communities the communities that often cannot vote often are sort of assumed to just be willing to accept exploitation and um and i have done it because i believe that in order to build a just society we need to, the sort of the history of this country is a history of people who are pushed to the margins, always pushing to be included in the promise. That is, that is how we have made advances in this, in this country for uh, hundreds of years. And, um, and so I have been very engaged in, in the efforts to, to pass up to win policies that improve people's lives and building organizations like Make the Road and others that allow communities, working class communities to be taken seriously and be engaged. The kinds of organizations that I have built are organizations that have internal democracy. So I'm very familiar with how to practice accountability to communities um, that are organized and, and how to lead in a way that is very rooted in those values. Now, the organizations that I have built also were organizations that I built from very small to very large. When I started um, leading uh, Make the Road, it was an organization that was quite small. And when I left, it was a $13 million organization with 115 staff. 
when I started CPD or when I joined the team at CPD, the Center for Popular Democracy, it was again at a, in its infancy. And I just stepped down uh, from that role, uh, leaving it a $35 million organization. So I have 20 years of executive experience. Um, and most importantly, I have 20 years of uh, experience fighting to make sure that working class communities are respected in our democracy and that our lives are improved by those who we elect. So that's the experience that I would bring to the role of lieutenant governor. And finally, I feel like, you know, the lieutenant governor's role has sort of two defined powers. One is uh, presiding over the Senate, and that is a role that should not be just done in a ceremonial way. I think that, you know, someone who presides over the Senate could, for example, say, last night, 92,000 people slept in shelters and on the streets. What are we doing about that? And also, the lieutenant governor can has the responsibility to step into the governor's role if the governor is incapacitated or resigns. And again, an active lieutenant governor who is engaging and actually driving an agenda that improves people's lives is a better equipped to step into the role of governor if that were necessary. So that's how I, um, I see the value of my experience and especially the value of my demonstrated great. commitment to uplifting people. That's great. Right. And, and after Benjamin's indictment last week, several progressive state legislators, as well as New York City Comptroller Brett, Brad Lander endorsed you. This is Assemblymember Ron Kim from Queens speaking about the quote-unquote formula for remaining in power in state government. We'll go to that clip now. Places like Albany, the formula is very clear. Corporate politics, buy people off, and win elections. That's what they do. We need leadership that prioritizes people and communities first. Center solutions around our most vulnerable people first. Not the corporations who are extracting billions of dollars every single year while we compete for chump change. We need a lieutenant governor that can say enough is enough. It doesn't matter who the governor is. We need a lieutenant governor who can say, we're not going to shill for corporate interests. We're not going to shill for billionaires. We're going to fight for every dollar that our schools deserve. We're going to fight to fund every immigrant needs in the state of New York. Your reaction to that, Ana Maria? And then also, what would you do as Lieutenant Governor governor to try and change that pervasive pay-to-play culture in Albany? And, uh, and you know, also New York State campaign finance uh, allows 65000 in max donations for governor. So how are you and Jumani fundraising for your campaigns? So first of all, I agree 100% with uh, Ron Kim, and I am so proud to have his support and the support of um, Assembly members, uh, Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, Yulin Nu, um, and others um, who have uh, come out to support our campaign uh, because uh, he's right for, as you know, the corporate interests have control over the agenda in Albany, and we saw it in the budget. 
the way that donor, the sort of big industries get to decide uh, the policy priorities is really a disservice to New Yorkers. And the campaign finance uh, rules facilitate that. Um, the fact that, you know, a governor can say, I'm not going to raise taxes on Wall Street and millionaires, and then that governor gets to raise millions of dollars in just a, a few weeks it's a demonstration of how um you know how uh corrosive the role of money is in in our politics uh jumani and i have pledged not to take money from real estate and not to take money from corporate PACs, precisely so that we are our our priorities and our and our agenda is not obscured by the interest and the pressures of real estate and and corporate PACs. Um, I yesterday was tax day, and um, there is an organization called Patriotic Millionaires that is an organization of millionaires who believe that millionaires should pay their fair share, and they published a report that said in New York state, there are 125 billionaires who just in the last two years since the pandemic started made in, in gains $228 billion, $228 billion in wealth accumulated during the pandemic, simply because their wealth is sitting in stocks and those stocks are gaining value and they uh, were able to become $228 billion richer. You know what? That is more than the budget of the entire state of New York. The budget that just passed was $220 billion. And New York is not taxing any of the wealth that these 125 individuals who reside in the state of New York made over the last two years. That is terrible. We should be taxing billionaires on the wealth that they have, um, even if it's an unrealized gains. Because if that wealth is real enough for banks to lend credit to them based on their portfolio, then that wealth should be real enough for us to tax it. And um, I think that a new, entirely new uh, life would be possible for New Yorkers if we dare to tax the richest few, like these 125 residents of the state of New York who are billionaires and made more than $200 billion over the last two years, and if we were willing to tax corporations at a fair share. Right. So Jumani and I want to lift that up, the possibility of a more just New York if we actually make the richest few pay their fair share. Sounds good. And, and uh, we'll have to go here in a couple of minutes. But in your 20 plus years as an organizer, Anna Maria, the moment you're most famous for occurred in the fall of 2018 when you confronted Arizona Senator Jeff Flake in Washington, D.C., uh, in, in a Senate office uh, building uh, during the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation hearings, which you were a part of the protests against that. Uh, we're going to go to a clip of that. Do you have an answer, Senator? Senator Flake, do you think that Brett Kavanaugh is telling the truth? Do you think that he's able to hold the pain of this country and prepare it? That is the work of justice. The way that justice works is you recognize harm, you 
Anna Maria Archila, your reflections of four years later on, on that moment and what it says about how you might uh, perform if you were to be someone holding public office? Well, you know, I have, I had been an organizer for many years before that moment. And that fight, the fight to uh, stop the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh required of me something I had never given, which was to um, speak my own truth and um, and I did it because I watched other people around me be so courageous, telling their stories um, of experiencing sexual violence and sexual assault. And it was by witnessing all the courage around me that I then was able to um, release this part of my experience that I had never told. And what I learned in that moment are two things. One is that courage is really contagious that when you see people be courageous around you, you are invited to find that seed of courage in yourself. And courage is built in community. So, you know, when we think about the experience in New York and the women who told their stories of um, the abuses of power under under Cuomo, uh, at the hands of Cuomo, um, their courage the was actually the thing that unlocked <laughs> all the sort of the grip of power that that Cuomo had over over Albany and New York. And and I think in this moment, um, when I think about the last 20 years and the compounding crisis, the crisis of COVID, the crisis of climate um, change, the crisis of inequality, the attacks on our democracy, what defines these, these crises for me is actually the courage of people who stand up for one another, who take risks, um, who we, take we have, care uh, 30 of one seconds. another, and the courage of people who fight for one another. So I think the task for elected officials right now is actually to match the courage of people. And I would be so honored to be able to bring that experience in Albany and to try to do my very best to honor the courage of people who are demanding a more just society. Okay, Anna Maria Archila, Democratic candidate for Lieutenant Governor of New York, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you. Okay. We'll be back after this short music break, and we'll be talking about Palestinian liberation. Oh, no. 